It's a seller's market. The economy is strong. And the level of activity, M&A activity for private equity-backed businesses or businesses seeking private equity backing is very robust. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. Our agency has consulted many mid-sized manufacturing organizations over the last 10 plus years. Quite a few are second or third generation family-owned businesses. Others have transitioned to entirely new ownership, and a good chunk of them are private equity-owned. Regardless, any manufacturing owner somewhere along the way will start thinking about what the transition in leadership and ownership might look like and what his or her options might be. My guest today is someone who happens to know a little something about this topic. So let me introduce him. Chris Redmond is Senior Vice President of Capital for Business, a middle market private equity firm singularly focused on success of industrial growth companies. Chris is responsible for sourcing, selecting, structuring, and managing CFB's platform and add-on acquisitions. He brings more than 20 years of corporate finance experience to bear in providing guidance to CFB portfolio companies, providing insight into issues faced by business owners and management teams. During his 14 years with A.G. Edwards & Sons and two years with Morgan Stanley, Chris provided mergers and acquisitions and capital raising solutions to private and publicly traded companies in a broad range of industries. In addition, Chris served as Chief Operating Officer for Asset Manager Argent Capital Management. Chris, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. You bet. Well, Chris, before we get into it, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you found your way into this world of private equity, specifically for middle market industrial businesses, which frankly make up a large portion of, of our audience right now? Sure. Part of it is was strategic. Part of it was opportunity, opportunistic. But as, as you mentioned in my bio, I am a reformed investment banker. But if you think of banking, it's a little bit of marketing. It's a little bit of corporate finance. It's a little bit of of uh, accounting and analysis, but it's also a business where you spend time with a lot of different companies and you get insights into working in a very dynamic environment with different business owners and and strategies and and the like. And so I, I, I was in banking for a long time and then my firm was sold. And I took that as an opportunity to switch gears and get into management, which I did with a small asset manager, but I learned a lot about managing people thinking about strategy, and I would say focusing on internal aspects of growing a business. That ran its course, however, when I realized that the the dynamic nature and the variety of the banking experience was missing at that point and and was part of my fabric. And so I, I looked for ways to satisfy that. And the opportunity to join Capital for Business came up. I had provided services to industrial business in the past, businesses in the past, also 
business services companies, technology companies. And what I felt was that while industrial is the way that we express ourselves, what we're really doing is we're investing in people and in businesses and helping them solve problems and be successful. And so through through the course of my banking career and a little bit of management experience, I felt like I was well positioned to, to provide that level of advice, if you will. And it's been a great fit. No, that's great. I was when you said that you know some of it was strategic and some of it sort of just happened. It's it's kind of the same world for me. You know, we we as a, as a marketing agency early on sort of found some opportunities with manufacturers and we realized we really liked working with them. And then it became strategic after that and said we really want to own this. But I was just kind of curious how you how you wound up where you are in in this niche and developing a specialty. So it is a journey. It is. It is indeed. So on that note, given who sort of our, our overlapping audiences are here and in, in mid-sized manufacturers, you know, a lot of the companies that I talk to, clients of ours, prospects I talk to, many of them are private equity owned. And one thing that I've learned that is that very, you know, different private equity firms have very different ways of creating value. And some of these organizations in, in private equity are very hands-on inside the business. Others tend to take more of a board-level guidance approach. Others yet are purely financial investors providing funding and staying in the background. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you as an expert in this field. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the difference in approaches and when each makes sense. Sure. I, I think one umbrella comment I would say is that Hopefully, if a private equity investor is successful, they have the ability to do any of the three scenarios that you described. But each group has a culture and an infrastructure that lends itself to one of those three themes, if you will. So a hands-on investor might have a larger team, and they might have people with specialties in operations. And, and often they call themselves operating partners, but they might have specialties in operations or in sales development or bank relationships or someone who's very focused on identifying M&A targets. And that's all within that shop. And what what you as a private equity business owner and manager would see from that company is a very hands-on approach. They're your day in and day out partner, and they are really an extension of the management team. That's appropriate, I'd say, for companies that need that augmentation of management. And, and that's not a criticism, but there are businesses that, that really could broaden, broaden their teams. It's appropriate if a business is in need of some very intense operational support on a day-to-day basis, either to improve operations or to, to change you know, industry focus or, or product sets, things, things of that nature. I'd say the next group, which is the board-level guidance, describes capital for business. And the way we view it is that we put management teams in place. They might already be there, but we put management teams in place. We provide them with, with strategy. We help to identify success factors and metrics. We set expectations and we let those managers execute. It's really all about the people in our business, even though we get hung up on strategy and equipment and end markets and those things. It's, it's, it's about the people. But there are times where the hands-on folks' expertise are necessary. So if there are acquisition opportunities, we tend to jump in and spend a lot of time with our management teams. If there are operational issues, we tend to look outside and bring in third-party resources to help with the shop floor efficiency issue. So it's not someone that works for capital for business, but we certainly bring to bear whatever guidance and advice a company needs. And then there are hands-off investors that are financial investors Typically, they're looking to 
perhaps pay a slightly higher multiple for a very clean, smooth running business. Perhaps that business was previously private equity owned and it's just time, you know, it's five to seven years down the road, it's time for the prior investor to exit and someone steps right in. And there, it would not be uncommon if that company continues to perform to hear from their investor quarterly at a board meeting. Whereas, you know, we're sort of weekly to monthly, depending on what, what the needs are, the business at the time are, are at the time. So, so there are different flavors, but I, I go back to my initial comment, which is whatever the needs of the business are, it's important to determine based on the experience of the private equity group that they can provide guidance, advice, input into those needs, whether it's in-house or whether it's through a third party. And, you know, all three of those groups should be able to, to dive into a business and do that. That's a really good summary. Chris, I'm curious what things a private equity firm like Capital for Business is looking for in a mid-sized manufacturing organization when you're considering an investment. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. You know, we we typically look for niche manufacturers, and that can mean a lot of things. But but to me, it means something that differentiates a business so that they're competitive in a particular niche or so that their margins uh, look a little bit different and perhaps higher than, than others who play more broadly. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be focused on a very, very specific sector of the market. It could be multiple sectors, but a value-added provider with some niche expertise. We always look for growth potential and growth is in the eye of the beholder. Some people like 15% sales growth. Some people are comfortable with 4%. We just want to understand the industry and that there's an ability to grow. That can be internal, through diversifying customer bases, improving customer acquisition, and essentially sales. can also be internal growth through improving efficiency and improving margins and, and cash flows. But external growth through acquisition is, you know, is obviously a very common way of, of adding to the growth trajectory of the business, particularly if a company is entering, trying to enter into new markets. But in our case, we often acquire to, to kind of extend the value chain to add more capabilities and, and perhaps add some, a little bit vertical integration down the chain, like adding assembly, for example, to someone who's you know, making fabricated parts. And I'll talk a little bit about that in, in the future, but that can be done through acquisition. So, so we look for niches, we look for growth, we always look for management or at least look to understand management. And clearly there are business owners who intend to transition out of a business and we're not intimidated by the need to find new management, but we do look for teams that can continue to, to execute and can grow with us and, and improve their businesses. Then I'd say we, we, we always focus on blocking and tackling. What are the end markets? What's the equipment? What do systems look like? If there are holes in management, can we fill them? So th those are things that we're intently, intensely focused on, but we can accomplish solving those issues if necessary post-close through investment or, or through uh, augmenting the management team. So but those are the things we look, look for. And, and as we mentioned at the outset, we're more of a board level guidance type shop to begin with. And it's all about the people. It's all about management. So if we get the right management in place, help them to devise a, a good solid plan and, and monitor and measure that plan well, then, then it's a recipe for success. And that's that's really good. You know, so one of the first things you said there kind of jumped out to me because it's something I talk about in my own world often. And you mentioned companies that have a niche or they have some kind of defined differentiator that makes them different. And 
there are so many companies I talk to, and of course I'm coming at this from the standpoint of like positioning of your business to to the market and and everything. But a lot of companies kind of think they're different because they say, "Oh, we've got great customer service," or you know, our our, our people are just really good, and our competitors aren't like that. And I always challenge people on that because I think that from the outside, a lot of companies just kind of look the same, and you, you need to. You know, I mean, I'll just use ourselves as an example. Like we, we have specialized at Gorilla in working with midsize industrial sector companies. Like we're focused on digital marketing and demand generation. But whoever it is, you know, as, as a manufacturer, I think it's really important that you know you, you take a look at your business and say like, what what are we really truly good at doing? Listen to the words that are coming from your customers' mouths about like what do they value about you, and try to build around that because I think it's just people don't they get caught up in their own worlds and realize they don't realize they look the same to everybody on the outside. So it's just kind of curious curious to hear your perspective on that as a private equity guy as opposed to a marketing guy like me. Yeah, well, I, oftentimes businesses are manufactured that, that we look at are manufacturers of something having to do with metal or plastic. So they start with the same machines, the same capabilities. Perhaps the, the first differentiator is end markets. And some end markets have higher margins than others. And, and we have the benefit of looking at a lot of companies. And if, if a company is in an end market that's growing and, and should have higher margins, well, then that business that we're looking at should have a growth profile and a margin profile that suggests that they're doing a great job of serving that niche. And occasionally that's not the case. That doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have an interest in business because it may be that they do other things credibly well. And if they maybe uh, understood their cost better and priced more strategically, they might be able to enhance their margins. But there are clearly, I'll give you an extreme, there are some businesses that are distributors and, and maybe they're just packaging something for someone. And, and the end customer says, yeah, we value these guys because they're the only ones that will turn the machine on for low volume, high mix opportunities. And that's a nice niche if you get paid for the change over times and the downtime and the variability of providing low volume, high mix business. And so very often there is a margin improvement that you can see. And you could say that customer service in that particular case is a differentiator that the end customer values. So sometimes I look at a business and say, I don't know what they do, but they're doing something special. Look at those numbers. And then you try to get underneath to, to find out what, what is different. And occasionally we don't really have a chance to learn that because it's it could be a secret sauce in some ways, but we don't have a chance to learn that until we actually meet management teams and spend a day with them and and drill into what the differentiators are. So you are correct. There, there's a great deal in, in industrial America that looks similar, but there are enough customers out there that you can differentiate yourself. And in terms of improvement and profitability, that, that's endless in some ways. And, and there's a broad range of outcomes in that regard. Yeah, I, I really agree with kind of the, the last thing you said there that most companies do actually have differentiators, but they either just haven't uncovered them or they're hanging their hat on the wrong thing that is just sort of commoditizing their business from the perspective of people they're trying to reach. So Chris, is there an example or case study that you could use from your experience in private equity that sort of describes the transformation a company in your portfolio has gone through from the day you entered to the day you exited? I'd love to kind of hear what that journey looks like or maybe has looked like in an example and what happened along the way. Sure. I'll provide a, a couple of examples. And, and 
the first I touched on a bit, it, it, it was a company that broadened its capabilities to kind of extend it down the value chain and, and add more value to, to its end customer. So this is a business that uh, is, is essentially a sheet metal fabricator. So it goes back to, you know, they, they have the same cutting machines, the same forming machines, the, the same probably skilled labor as many people do, but they have precision products that have attracted a really neat customer base. So think of a medical lab bench that's that's in a diagnostic setting or in, you know, a pharmaceutical development setting. Think of an ag and turf part that ends up on a fairly significant, you know, it's a small market. So you might imagine who the large commercial players are in that, but they have very high quality standards. You might see a branded motorcycle or a snowmobile that has their parts on it. And, you know, they're they're important in terms of their durability and their safety and things of that nature. So a, a company that was a neat, solid company in its own right and very, very successful. We transformed that business through two acquisitions. And the first was much more of an acquisition in their own lines of business that added capacity, equipment was similar, and customers were fairly similar. But there were two differentiators. One is that they had a small but profitable assembly operation. And so they were primarily doing sub-assemblies, but they did some end product assembly, not necessarily sophisticated, complex assemblies, but they added value and were able to capture more wallet share for that that end customer. The second was that it essentially had a paint shop, a, a powder coating paint shop, which we typically don't have that much of an interest in because there's a lot of capacity available and it's not a high margin business. In their business though, for precision enclosures, paint is really important, has to be super high quality. And they actually found that there was a shortage of high quality third parties that they could work with. And so controlling their own paint shop became sort of a strategic advantage. And and so those were two things that added to the business and and it was a nice first step in an acquisition. The second acquisition took it even a step further in terms of assemblies. And so they they acquired a business that was a very, it had machining in addition to fabrication, but it also had a couple of very large customers that trusted them to do full turnkey outsourced manufacturing. So they, they made a certain portion of the parts, they specced and procured the other portion of the pot parts, did a full assembly of a large commercial ag and turf product line, put it in a box and sent it out to the end user. And so, you know, the the customer could could focus on their manufacturing capacity on some other things, even though their design work and their intellectual property still ended up inside that box. But it was really a full turnkey assembly capability and it's a little bit early. We haven't quite exited that business, but it's a little early, but it's it's expected to be kind of a third leg in the stool, machining, fabrication, and really full turnkey contract manufacturing. So we have high expectations for that and the early returns are, are good. I'll offer one other example that's a little bit shorter, but it relates to niche and it's a focus on a niche. We, when we acquire a business, it may have a niche or two, and it may not have found its way. And this was a particular company in the in the molding industry that was diversified, and it provided parts to consumer products and industrial products and medical products and a few other end markets. And the you know it wasn't just our idea, but the management team felt like if they really invested in their business and and refocused on medical or focused on medical, they could change the margin and growth profile of the business. And that's what occurred. Now, it's easier said than done. If you think of the medical industry, and these these are plastic injection molded parts for medical devices, you have stringent customer quality issues. You have FDA audits and quality issues and, and repeatability and, 
and the like. It requires investments in material handling and automated drying, for example, so that a human doesn't touch the material from, from when it comes out of the raw materials all the way into the end product and is, is packaged. It requires investment in physical plant and clean room plant. So we put a lot of time and effort and money, expansion of sales resources and other things. But it's a business that went from about 50% medical when we bought it to, to almost 100% today. And the margin and growth profile reflects that difference. And, you know, by the way, it's also a much higher multiple end of the market for these kinds of companies. And so we should be well rewarded when we exit. So those are a couple of examples. But, you know, a niche business that hadn't really found its niche, but it was right there under its nose. And then, and then perhaps a, another business that added both capacity and capabilities, but also really extended down the value chain to, to provide a much higher value product to some key customers. Those are great examples. I, I always like to try to you know illustrate some of these concepts with something a little more tangible to help listeners. So two really good and different examples. So Chris, for um, any manufacturing business owners listening right now who are thinking about maybe seeking an outside investment via private equity or, or even just kind of thinking about, you know, how, how do I take my business to the next level? I'm just kind of curious, for, like, where, where would you advise that they start? Yeah, I, I think and some of this is common sense, but you'd be surprised how difficult it is for a business owner to to come to the realization that they either would like to exit or or would really like to bring on someone else who might have some element of control over their business. So so very often we see people who are less prepared. So I think the message is around preparedness. And and it starts with assessing the business owner assessing his or her interests. How long do they want to remain with the business? What are the challenges of the business? If at one extreme, the challenge is that the business is solid, but it's it just lacks the scale to compete, then perhaps even a strategic buyer, not a private equity buyer, is the right buyer. And you know they can take care of the operating level employees, perhaps not the executive level employees, because they might assume that, but it may be, and there are many cases where the, the, a strategic buyer is a great partner, particularly if maximizing value is the sole objective of, of the owner, but it's often not. And private equity valuations can be very, very competitive. And so in in that case, at the other extreme, a private equity solution is appropriate for an owner who's not yet ready to, to retire, but can see that over the next five to seven years, they'd like to transition and, and they would like to take, you know, achieve some financial diversification now and sell a good portion of their business, but but stick around and, and grow with the business for, for a bit longer. But it has to do with preparation and it has to do with really assessing your needs and determining what you'd like to do. Now, your question was, where do you start? I, I think you start in, uh, there's an abundance of resources out there. Private equity 20 years ago was mysterious. And today it's a very established business and not suggesting that everyone knows exactly how it works, but there are private equity firms who are very approachable that would be happy to, like us, that would be happy to tell you how, how we do business and they can get a feel for the culture and the mechanics of, of what it actually looks like to be private equity owned. There are bankers, there are attorneys, there are acquaintances who have sold their businesses to private equity. There's Joe Sullivan and his clients who who have had exposure in the past. So so I think there there are a lot of resources, but ultimately until you talk to different kinds of parties in the context of a sale process that's very serious, that's when you really get down to, you know, assessing what, what you need and what, what the differences are. There are a lot of people that say they do proprietary deals, which means they go out and they they buy a business, they approach it one off and 
and they buy it without the competition that's created by an investment banker. And that does happen. But these days, intermediaries play a pretty important role. And, and there's usually someone who's supporting a business owner who is seeking to sell, whether it's a full-fledged investment bank or whether it's someone who's maybe a little bit more hands-off, but it's a broker who's helping them to find a, an array of buyers to talk to. We typically see someone, and there is value in helping to support and organize the effort of someone who's selling their business. So there is value to, to having an intermediary involved in addition to creating a competitive environment. But even on our side, the, the, the buyer, there's value to having an intermediary involved. Sure. And no, that makes sense. Is there anything you'd like to add to the conversation, Chris, that we didn't touch on? Well, it, it's maybe not a surprise to folks, but it pains me to say that it, it's a seller's market. The economy is strong. I think if people were to to have looked back a year ago at the beginning of the pandemic and, and wondered how the next 12 months would, would shake out. And there are clearly businesses that are in end markets that are heavily affected. But, but for the most part, our portfolio has weathered the storm quite well. And the level of activity, M&A activity for private equity-backed businesses or businesses seeking private equity backing is very robust. It's, I judge the market by how frequently opportunities cross our desks and what the quality is of those opportunities. And, and they are either crossing our desks or we're seeing them or, or you know, one way or another, we're, we're in front of them. And today, uh, frequency is high and quality is very high. There's a lot of capital, no surprise that lenders and, and investors are trying to put capital to work. And that means that valuations are strong. So, you know, as, as a buyer, that's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, we're buyers, but we're also sellers. So we're selling businesses as well. And, and it just happens that that's the equilibrium today. It has been a seller's market for some time. The world will cycle downward at some point, but it is definitely a seller's market. So I think for those sellers or buyers, but for those sellers that are assessing their, their future needs, you know, they've probably heard it for a few years now, but now is as, as good a time as any to approach the market. Good way to wrap it up. Yeah, I, I imagine that you know, if we were sitting here a year ago having this conversation, it probably would have been a, a wild guess at what what things looked like ahead. But it's it's kind of amazing looking, you know, after what what the world's gone through over the last year or so, that we are where we are with the economy. So very good. Well, Chris, this was a really great discussion. I appreciate you doing this today. Joe, thanks very much. Um, happy to be a resource to you or, or any of your clients or really anyone that, that would like to bounce ideas off of Capital for Business. There are six of us here, various levels of experience, but uh, we have a pretty experienced team. So we enjoy being a part of the community. We enjoy being a resource to the community. And we spend a whole lot of time talking to people who don't do transactions with us. So I encourage folks to, to reach out to the extent we can be helpful. No, that's that's really great. Low low pressure there. So you know, I, I appreciate you offering that. Chris, where is the best? Uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you and also to learn more about Capital for Business? Sure, I, I'd say our website is a good place, as, as good a place as any. It's www.cfb.com, and then all of our individual contact information is there as well as more color on our portfolio. So if you have a business that looks like some of our businesses and would like some insights into the market, feel free to to track me down. Awesome. Well, I've I've met a handful of you guys and can vouch for, you know, this is a, an awesome group, really approachable crew. And I'd encourage you to, to reach out to them if this is something that's on your mind. So Chris, yeah, thanks once again for, for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Sounds great. Anytime. Awesome. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. 
You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>